Open your Bible this morning to the book of Ruth in chapter number one. The book of Ruth in chapter number one, and what a joy it is to be back in Franklin. And I'm so grateful and thankful for your labor and work for Christ. And my, just drove into the up into the property today, and you folks have been working awfully hard, giving awfully hard, doing a lot of things awfully hard. And and uh, every time I come, it just seems like there's another project going on. And sure enough, yep, there's the construction stuff in the back, a little dust, and all that's good. It should be that way. Thank you for working for Christ and and uh, desiring to do things right for the Lord Jesus Christ. You you know, it's interesting. I've been studying this year the book of First Chronicles, and you are reminded of two things. Number one, if it's the work of God, it ought to be done right. There's no sloppy way to, to honor the Lord. However, on the other side of that, you know, it's not opulence either. So the Lord is not impressed by stained glass. He's not impressed by a, a, a fanciness, so to speak. And to do it for him is to do it right. Yet at the same time, the Most High God dwelleth not in buildings made with hands. And uh, we are reminded it's not about a building, it's about a people. You know, in the early days of America, uh, Baptist churches were very careful about this. And I, I, I don't know if we are today, maybe we should be. But in Baptist churches, the preachers would be very careful to point at a building and say that is the building that houses Spring Meadow Baptist Church. That is the building that houses Bible Baptist Church, Calvary Baptist Church. And just a great reminder that it, they're buildings, but it's a people that is a church, a church, a body of men and ladies and young people gathered together for the purpose of seeing people saved and the work of God going forward. And I appreciate your heart to build a people, to build a building, to do things right for our Savior. Might so impressive this morning. You have your Bible to the book of Ruth in chapter number one. Thank you as well for such a good warm welcome on just a nasty cold day. This is just for an Arizona guy. This is like below zero, I think. If it gets below 40, that's kind of how we think of this. So, But I appreciate so much a good warm welcome. Ruth chapter number one. When we open our Bible to the book of Ruth, it, it is really quite the stunning book in the Bible. It's the only Old Testament book that is named after someone who is not an Israelite. But even more than that, when you go to the book of Ruth 14 times, we are reminded that either Ruth is from Moab, or more specifically, she is Ruth the Moabitess. What a thing. I mean, you're never far from the last one, and you're always right near the next one. There's only four chapters. I think it's 85 verses. And in those verses, there's 14 times where God just can't get out of his way of reminding us that this woman, Ruth, is from Moab. And that becomes a very significant thing because God had already established in the law in Deuteronomy 23 that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. They had a curse upon them. And the Moabites refused to let Moses and the people pass through what today would be the land of Jordan. And for that reason, well, the God of the Bible, he put a curse upon Moab. And why the judgment of God on Moab starts where they began, literally by the Dead Sea with a man named Lot. And it just gets worse and worse. And why by the time we come to the book of Ruth, it is horrific. The book of Ruth fits in somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges, somewhere between Judges chapter 2 and Judges chapter 10. In fact, the Israelite historians of the Old Testament, all right, you understand, Israelite historians, it's not the same as inspired Bibles, so you can take it or leave it, but they claim that Ruth was the daughter of King Eglon. 
Now, if that were true, that would make this book all the more powerful and all the more uh, wonderful what our God had done. For if Ruth was truly the daughter of Eglon, Eglon was an Adolf Hitler of his day. He despised Jewish people. He hated them, murdered them. He was an evil man. And, and then God raised up a preacher. In baseball terms, he would have been a southpaw. Uh, a left-handed preacher. I don't know if the Lord could use a left-handed preacher, but he did in the book of Judges. And old Ehud, the lefty, came up and, and why he delivered Israel. It's quite the amazing story. And, and, and if it's true that Ruth was the daughter of Eglon, no, the story just becomes all the more powerful. But the Bible tells us the Moabites were a people with a curse upon them. So from this cursed land of Moab is going to rise one of the great stories of the Bible. If you're able this morning, could I invite you to stand with me as we read from Ruth chapter 1, verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kelion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilium died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Father, we ask for your help now as we open the Bible that hey, you would speak to us and convict us and change us. And Lord, that the Word of God would do what the Word of God is so good at showing us what we need to deal with in our lives. Father, I pray if someone in this place has never called upon the name of Christ, what a great day to be saved. Help your people in the strong, mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. In verse number one, the Bible says it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you have ever read the book of Judges, then you understand what I say. When you read that book, you kind of find yourself shaking your head. And every chapter in the book of Judges, you come to the end of it and you say, well, the good news is it can't get any worse than that. And then you read the next chapter and somehow it does get worse than that. I mean, the book of Judges, you could call it the soap opera of the Bible. The good guys are guys like Samson and Gideon. That ought to tell us everything we need to know. And as you read the book of Judges, you kind of shake your head and say, why, the wheels are coming off. This is what happens to a society that, that has abandoned God. And why should we be surprised? Because when God wraps up the book of Judges, well, the last verse before Ruth 1, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. No wonder the book of Judges is such a disaster. Humans have made themselves the authority. We don't want God. We don't want the Bible. God's not going to tell us what to do. Uh, we'll be our own little gods. And the Bible says when human authority had become the standard and every man doing that which is right in his own eyes, well, no wonder we have the chaos and the disaster that we do. We shouldn't be surprised then when we read at the end of the book of Judges, everyone's doing right in their own eyes. And the next verse in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says there was a famine in the land. God's just keeping his word. God had already promised the nation of Israel long before 
Leviticus 26, that if they had turned their back on him and they were going to do it their way, so to speak, and if God says, if you're not going to obey my words and follow my commands, then, then one of the things you'll deal with of many, one of them will be a famine in the land. And sure enough, exactly what God promised, God delivered. Folks, could I say that we live in a little different day? I think one of the more dangerous things that we're seeing in churches across American religion is that a lot of people want to go back to the Old Testament and they want us to be tied in with Israel. It's a dangerous philosophy, even more dangerous when you get into the future study of the Bible. No, there's a very big difference between today where God is working through new Testament local churches like yours and in the Old Testament when God was dealing with a nation. When God was dealing with the nation of Israel, he said, now you need to understand, I'm dealing with you as a nation, so if you forsake me, well, there's going to be fires and floods and famines and all sorts of things. Nowadays, we're kind of prone to think, hey, there's a hurricane in Miami, you know, and there's a tornado in Oklahoma City, and, and there's an earthquake in Los Angeles. Boy, the Lord's really judging things. No, we live in a very different day. The Old Testament, God would judge with fire and famine and flood, and in the tribulation, a time that's yet in our future, God's going to do it again. But in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says that in our day, when a society abandons the word of God, and when society says we refuse the God of heaven, the creator, we will decide what we will do, then it's fascinating what the judgment of God looks like. We tend to look for asteroids and comets and fires and floods, but God said when my judgment comes in New Testament times, you will be filled and overflowing with wickedness and sin. It's powerful because humans think we want to do this and we want to get away with that and we don't want this to be wrong. And it's almost like the Lord says, okay, you're going to get what you want, but you're going to get more than you want. And when it's all said and done, there'll be so much fornication, so much violence. There will be so much immorality that you can't let your kids walk the streets. I mean, when the judgment of God comes in our day, we pretty much get what we want and we get it to the fill. And we live in a different time. But when God was deal dealing with the nation of Israel in Ruth chapter number one, well, the Bible tells us he sent up famine in the land, hopefully to get the attention of the people, hopefully that they would respond to him. So in verse number two, uh, the Bible introduces us to a man that lives in this city of Bethlehem. It says that his name was Elimelech. The name of the man was Elimelech. As you come to Ruth chapter number one, you begin to realize this is so true in the Old Testament, how important names are. You know, we live in a day where names have gone from being important for their meaning to being difficult to spell, I think. I'm not exactly sure what the plan is nowadays, but um, if you walk into a Burger King and you see the lady there, the guy there, you know, a B-Y-L-L-E-I-G-H, that would be Billy. Or E-I-G-H-M-E-E. -E. That'd be Amy. You know, can't we just make this a little more simple? In the olden times, in Bible times, names were chosen for their meaning more than their pretty spelling, I think, nowadays. And, and as you come to Ruth chapter number one, you're reminded what's in a name. It really does matter. The Bible introduces us to a man named Elimelech. And, and though it doesn't necessarily tell us much about him, I think it tells us something about mom and dad. For the name Elimelech means my God is my 
my king. You know, as you read the book of Judges, well, pretty much the attitude was, I am my king. I decide what right and wrong is. I will determine what I will do. And so for parents to have a little child and name me Limelech, well, that's impressive. They are saying in our family, we're different than the culture. Our family's going to live differently from the rest of the world. Here, our God, Jehovah, is our king. My God is my king. What a great name for a little guy named Elimelech. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the Bible says he had a wife. Her name was Naomi. Now, they call her Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. Naomi is kind of how it would sound in, in the Old Testament times. So the Bible says there's Elimelech, my God is my king, and he is married to a lady, Naomi. Naomi means to be sweet and kind and pleasant. It's a great name. And, and you understand when these two people are walking down the aisle, not that they actually walked down the aisle, I suppose, in that day, but as they are being married, it's the perfect Bible. Bible marriage, isn't it? Mr. My God is my king is marrying Miss Sweetness and Miss Pleasantness. I mean, there's a lot to like here. And in the midst of a famine in the land, in the midst of some pretty desperate and dark days, well, here's a family, quite the family indeed. And the Bible says God blesses them with two sons. The name of the two sons were Malon and Killian. It looks like things had gotten a little desperate. And, and maybe these boys were born in the midst of the famine, for the name Malon means to be sickly and the name Killian means to be pining away or failing away. And, and maybe those names describe what's happening to the crops in Bethlehem. Maybe it's describing the desperate times in which they live. But we have Mr. My God is my king, married to Miss Sweetness and Pleasantness. But those two boys are, are growing up in an awfully tough society. But you know, of all the names in verse number two, uh, perhaps the most significant one is at the end of that verse where the Bible tells us that these people, this Elimelech family, they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, that's a fascinating thing because Ephrathites, well, that takes us back to the founding father of Bethlehem. The founding father of Bethlehem is one of the great heroes in the Bible, a man by the name of Caleb. Man, I love that old guy. I mean, you see that 80-plus-year-old man looking at a big mountain saying, you know, basically, get on board or get off the tracks because the train is leaving the station. And I mean, old Mad Dog, that's what Caleb means. Old Mad Dog says, I'm taking that mountain. And you can hear his wife saying, you know, man, you're 85 years old. I don't care how old I am. He says, get out. God said that mountain is mine. So I don't care how big the walls are. I don't care how big that hill is. I don't care how big those soldiers are behind that wall. They better get out of the way because Mad Dog is showing up. He's just a great guy in the Bible. And Caleb's son was the founder of Bethlehem. Caleb was married to a woman named Ephra. And so that's where the name Ephrathites come from. So when we talk about this Elimelech family, they weren't an ordinary family. They were, <clears throat> excuse me, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They went back to the founding father. You know, somebody well compared the story of Elimelech saying this would be almost like the Vanderbilts turning into sharecroppers. We are talking about an esteemed family. We are talking about a respected family. When the Bible reminds us that these were Ephrathites, they weren't just ordinary nobodies in the city of Bethlehem, a rather larger city. They were from the founding family, well-respected.
So you have the picture this morning. Here is Mr. Elimelech. His name means my God is my king. He marries Naomi, a name that means sweet and, and pleasant. They have two children that remind us that things are falling apart in a famine in the land. And of all things, they are Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. But in verse number one, the gentleman is going to make a choice. It says, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So there is a famine in the land, and things are desperate. And Mr. Elimelech, whose name means my God is my king, is about ready to show us that in truth his wallet is his king. Because the Bible says with the famine in the land, he's going to make a choice now of leaving the land to Bethlehem. He's going to take a journey that, quite frankly, is not a very long journey. Had he had a car, of course he didn't, but had he had one back then, you could do this in a couple hours at the most. I mean, you have to kind of get around the Dead Sea a little bit, but, but Jordan, well, on a clear day... Moses from Mount Nebo could see all the way to where Jerusalem would be. You can even see that now. That wasn't even that far. He's not going to go very, very far, but oh, while it isn't a long distance by foot, it certainly was a long distance in the heart. And the Bible tells us that because there's a famine in the land, he makes a decision to go sojourn in the country of Moab. You know, I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure I, I can hear the conversation as Mr. Elimelech goes to his rabbi and says, you know, preacher, there's a famine in the land. And the preacher says, yeah, I do. We all know that. Well, you know, I think I'm going to take my wife and my two boys, and I think we're going to move across the Dead Sea under the land of Moab. And by the way, could I just stop? You know, the liberal seminary professors have attacked this so frequently. They say, I mean, how could there be a desperate famine in Bethlehem? And you can almost see it on a clear day, the plains of Moab. How come there's no famine over there? Well, if you've been to that part of the world, you know the Dead Sea, can lowest spot on the earth is there. There's a huge climate difference often between one place and the other, that there could be a famine in Bethlehem and no famine in Moab. Well, elevation means everything. Climate means everything. That, that's certainly not a difficulty at all. And yet the liberal seminary professors, they just seem to pick their spots, don't they? And by the way, you know, for the longest time I used to hammer on liberal preachers. And then one day I realized, now there are liberal preachers, but there really aren't many. Because if somebody's actually preaching with passion, they believe what they're preaching. While there are a few liberal preachers, the truth is all of the attacks against the Bible start in seminary classrooms, virtually every one. And they just get a pass, but not from me, they don't. So it's the liberal cemetery professor, uh, seminary professors. They're the ones that get a student in the class when they're 18. They walk into class believing the Bible. By the time they get to the Christmas break, they, instead of saying, I believe the Bible, they're questioning the Bible. Halfway through the spring semester, they're misquoting the Bible. So by the time you get to May, they're denying the Bible. And pretty much there's a plan like that. It's found in Genesis, I think, Genesis chapter 3. And so the liberal seminary professors just attack the Word of God. But it's very easy for there to be a famine over here and no famine across the Dead Sea. And, and so the Bible tells us Elimelech's got a choice to make. Can't you hear him sit down with a rabbi and say, you know, rabbi, I think I'm going to take my wife and boys and, and we're going to move to the land of Moab. I can hear the rabbi. I mean, I wasn't there, but I can hear him. I can hear the rabbi say, let me show you what the Bible says. Deuteronomy, we call it chapter 7. Thou shalt not. Hey, folks, I love what he said. Oh, the Bible's so complicated. Really? What part of thou shalt not is so complicated? 
I mean, whatever follows thou shalt not, we better not do, you know? Whatever follows thou shalt, we're supposed to be doing. It's not as complicated as people think. And God said clearly, thou shalt not. And God said, don't go to Moab. And he gives them the reasons why. Because your boys are going to grow up and marry their girls. And your girls are going to marry their boys. God said, don't go. Don't go. And I can hear the rabbi, you know, showing them in right there in the Bible, scrolling it out right there. God said, don't go to Moab. And, and I'm pretty certain I know what comes next. I think this is how humans do it. And I can hear a limelick say, well, you know, rabbi, I prayed about it and I've got peace. The old, I've got peace. And when somebody's pulling out of the bag the old, I've got peace. Let me just translate that. I, I know I'm going to disobey the Bible. I know I'm going to violate what God said to do. But I figure if I tell my pastor that I've got peace, there's no answer to that. Well, a piece of the Bible would work a whole lot better than phony peace that we can get in our heart. Hey, we can talk ourselves into anything. And the Bible says, thou shalt not go. But Elimelech is going to make some choices. One by one, those choices are going to be a disaster. Let me show them to you, if I can, from the book of Ruth. Notice the first choice, and it's a subtle thing. But in verse number one, before he chooses to go to Moab, that'd be choice number two, his first choice was to leave Bethlehem, Judah. The Bible tells us he first makes the choice, I can leave Bethlehem, Judah. Now, that's a powerful name, isn't it? Bethlehem is the city. Judah would be a province, or we'd call it a state. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Judah means the house of praise. So here is a man, first of all, before he ever decides where he's going, before he ever decides what he's doing, he entertains the thought in his mind, I can afford to leave my house of bread and my house of praise. And you know, it's always the first step and a step of disaster for people today when they decide my local church is an optional thing. I, I, it doesn't matter. I can, you know, Sunday night, that's nice. We have a service, but I don't need to go. To gather together and pray on prayer meeting, I don't need that. And when a local church becomes an optional thing for us, we are walking down a road of trouble. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's what scholars like my brother would call a commandment in the Bible. God didn't say it would be nice if you would. God didn't say, let me give you something to think about. He said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And, and you know, one of the biggest problems in America, you might not think it's one, but you can probably just drive down your highway right here and it really doesn't matter what direction you go. And 10 years ago, Sunday night, you'd see buildings that were lit up where people were gathering to get around the Bible and hear the preaching of the Word of God. And now after 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, these same buildings are dark and silent. Understand, we don't need less Bible, we need more Bible. We don't need less assembly, we need more assembly. And the closer we get to the coming of Christ, we're going to need even more. Not less Bible, more Bible. Not less of our Savior, more of our Savior. But here is a man who says, it's not going to hurt. I can afford to leave my house of bread and praise. He has just entertained a thought in his mind that's going to be a disaster. Choice number one, he said, I can leave Bethlehem, Judah. But notice choice number Number two, right along with that, I can go to Moab. All right, now, commandment number one, you know, we well could say, don't forsake the assembly. And yet now, not only is he forsaking his home, the Bible tells us that he is going to the land of Moab. God said, don't. He said, I think I will. You say, well, well, well how does he justify this? And there's some clues here, aren't there? No, notice first it says he's going to the country of Moab. 
Notice it doesn't say he's going to the cities of Moab. And, and even back in the day, you can go to Jordan today and you can visit the, 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 rel, the relics of some of these ancient temples uh, where they bowed down to Molech. I mean, horrible things. The religion of Moab, you could argue, is the, one of the worst religions in world history. I, I mean, I know some of you might have just had breakfast and, and getting closer to lunch, so I, I won't bother you with the details. But if you take my word on that, the religion of Molech was horrific. What they would do, I mean, just, just horrible things. And, and, and that's the land of Moab. But, you know, it appeared that Elimelech convinces himself, no, 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 no. We're not going to go to the big cities. No, we're not going to go to the places where they have pagan idols. It's okay to go to Moab if we go to the country of Moab. But, you know, God didn't say, don't go to Moab unless you go to the countryside. He said, don't go to Moab. Don't go to Moab. Don't cross that Dead Sea. Don't cross that Jordan River. Don't do it. And, and yet the thinking is, it's okay to disobey the Bible just so long as I go to the country of Moab. But did you see the word sojourn? And, and suddenly it makes it all right now. Oh, no, no, no. The word sojourn means it's temporary. The word sojourn means we're just going to come alongside for a short time. And you can see the justification. Friend and family are saying, you know, I know it's bad in Bethlehem. And I know there's a famine in the land. But Elimelech, God doesn't want you in Moab. But, but you don't understand. I, I'm not going to the big city. And we're not bowing down in front of some Chemosh idol. We're not going to do that. It's all right to violate the Bible if you sojourn in the countryside. We're just temporarily going to the country. I'm just going to pay some bills. I'm going to get some money. We're going to take care of a few things. It's all right to violate the Bible, says Elimelech, if I sojourn in the country. Do you see the choices? They're kind of subtle, aren't they? They're very human, aren't they? Because when we're about ready to do something God tells us not to do, it's amazing how we can find technicalities. It's amazing how we can find the loopholes in the Bible. And so the man says, number one, I can afford to leave my Bethlehem, Judah. Number two, it's okay to go to Moab because I'm going to sojourn in the country. But notice the subtle change in verse number two. It says, they came into the country of Moab. And remember, the word above was sojourn. Well, now here's choice number three. It says they continued there. You see the change? It goes from sojourn, very temporary, to indefinite, continued there. Now, when you're leaving, well, you know, right now we got some, some crops in the ground. When you're leaving, right, well, I got a couple business deals I'm working. When you're leaving, well, I just don't know. No, 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 we're not Moabites. No, 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 we're not going to worship Chemosh. Oh, no, none of these things are true. I just don't know when we're going to leave. And do you see how subtle this is? He chooses to leave as Bethlehem Judah. Then, number two, he says, I can go as long as I'm sojourning in the country in Moab. But the Bible tells us this suddenly shifts to we're going to continue here. Notice choice number four turns into Elimelech was buried there. In verse number three, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. And, and you know, there's a big question, a very fair question. It becomes one of the most important questions in Ruth. Excuse me, Naomi, how come you're staying here? Uh, how come you're staying in Moab? And I think the Bible later gives us the reason. But you know, she doesn't return home and bury her husband in Bethlehem. Now, you and I living in America might, might not see it, might not care much about that. But the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, for a Jewish person to be buried in a pagan land like Moab for a man, it was a curse. 
in Amos 7, 17, thou shalt die in a, the judgment of God comes on you. God said, thou shalt die in a polluted land. Remember the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph looked like an Egyptian, sounded like an Egyptian, talked like an Egyptian, even had an Egyptian name that nobody could pronounce. Even they couldn't, I think. I certainly can't. But you know, for all of that, when he's 110 years old and he's about ready to suck his last breath, the last thing it says in the Bible he did was tell his sons, don't you bury me in Egypt. I, I don't care. Don't bury me in Egypt. And it's the only time you read this word in the Bible. They put him in a coffin, the only coffin in the Bible. And, and I don't know where that coffin was or what they did with it, but it was for a couple hundred years. And when finally God delivered the people of Israel and Moses led them across the Red Sea, the Bible tells us Moses carried with him Joseph's bones. Joseph said, I, I, I may look like Egypt, talk like Egypt, dress like Egypt, but I'm not an Egyptian. You make sure that I get buried in the land of promise. I don't care how long it takes. Well, the Bible tells us that when Elimelech dies, nobody's going home. So it all started out as, well, we can go temporarily to sojourn. It turned into, I don't know when we're leaving. We're continuing here. And now what do you know, at least for Elimelech, it is buried there. You realize that if we could go back in time and look at Elimelech one day by the big city gate and say, you know, one day you're, you're, you're going to be buried in Moab. Do you, do you understand how distasteful that was? Do you understand how impossible that was? I, I mean, I got to tell you, that, that'd be fighting words. But sure enough, decision by decision, choice by choice. We watch a man be buried, dying in a pagan land. Well, the Bible tells us in verse number five that it's just going to get worse, isn't it? The word of God tells us the man is buried there. And in, I'm sorry, verse four, they took them wives of the women of Moab. Moab is the grandson of Lot. Boy, what a disaster that was. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. You, you know, it's a clear violation of the Bible. But sure enough, just exactly what God said, the boys grow up and you know, old Malon, his heart starts thumping in his chest and he meets a little young lady and says, wilt thou? And, and, and Kilion, his heart starts thumping in his chest and he says, wilt thou? And she wilts and, and Malon marries Ruth and Kilion marries marries a lady by the name of Orpah, and now the Bible tells us exactly what God said not to do. They have done. All because of choices. It all goes back to saying, I can leave Bethlehem, Judah. It's all right because we're going to sojourn in the country. It turns into continued. It turns into buried. And, and now the Bible tells us the boys have married these girls of Moab. And then the word of God tells us when you think it couldn't get any worse, it says in verse 4, they dwelled there about 10 years. 10 years later, there are no grandchildren. 10 years later, there is no family. 10 years later, and this becomes critical in the story, the Bible tells us in verse 5 that Malon and Killiam died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. And now the Bible tells us it's tragedy everywhere you look. The Word of God tells us they've lost it all. They have lost their home. They have lost their spirituality. They've lost their walk with God. Dwelling in a pagan land, they have violated the Bible every single step of the way. And did you catch that subtle little word? It says they dwelled there 10 years. You look at the verbs and it really paints a picture, doesn't it? Verb number one says sojourn, temporary. Verb number two says continued, indefinite. Verb number three, of course, after the word buried, is dwelled. For this lady, Naomi, Moab is now where she lives. From temporary to indefinite to this world is now my home. 
And it's a tragic story of choices and a great reminder for you and for me today that you and I have choices and they may seem to be small and insignificant, but we have to choose. Am I going to honor the Bible, follow the word of God, or am I going to do what's right in my own eyes? And for all of the justifying we do and all the loopholes that we try to find, the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, at the end of the story of Naomi in this place called Moab, we have the story of choices coming home to haunt a family. And now in Ruth chapter 1, verse number 6, we are looking at death everywhere. Her husband is dead. Her boys are dead. There are no grandsons, which means that this respected, esteemed family, the whole family is about ready to die out. Everything's on life support, and it all goes back to choices. They may seem to be so small. They may seem to be so insignificant. But you and I can either choose this day to serve the Lord or we can choose this day to do it my way. But choices have consequences. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the testimony of the word of God and, and the story of this man Elimelech, choices he had to make. Would you remind us even this morning that, that if we play with the world and the things that are in the world, soon we'll love the world. And, and, and Lord, I pray you'd help us understand that slowly but surely the quicksand of the world can swallow up even a child of God. Lord, we know what the Bible says, so help us to honor the book, love the Word of God, obey the Word of God, not only be hearers, but to be doers of the Word. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to keep His commandments. Help us, Father, to have Your wisdom. In the great name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.